This is that Sunday, uh, once a year, where I think about all the spring breakers. Y'all think about them today and the, those people that are at places that we're jealous of, we desire to be. For many, many years, um, when I was, all my post-college years, for 13 of those po- post-college years, we worked with the campus ministry and got to every month, every month, every year in the month of March, rather, we got to go down to Daytona Beach for several years, and then when they moved the conference to Panama City, and we got, you remember these days, we got a corner hotel room per diem, and we got to MC this conference with Campus Crusade for Christ the whole month of March, mostly snowbirds, Yankees from the north coming down to Florida to enjoy spring break, and that was, uh, those were good days, weren't they? I'm not going to lie, I miss them a little bit. But I was just thinking the moment when Josh and the team were leading us in worship, I was just thinking, I'm like you guys, no different than y'all, even though I stand here. I tell you, there are times in big parts of me where I pine for the past, I fret about the future. And as we were singing about the goodness of God, uh, I kind of just got in the present moment and just reveled in the goodness of God in my own life. We, singed about, we sung about letting each other down. Isn't that true? We'd let each other down. I let you down. You guys let me down. We could talk about that a long time. But we let each other down. For real. I, I know I let you down. I know there's um, people in your life that let you down. Josh said, you, if you're thinking of the goodness of God, the person, you may look to the left or the right. And my daughter was in between my mother, in, her, in between her mother and I, I looked to her and said, look to your right, babe. Look to your right to think of the goodness of God uh, in your life. But look, the person you're next to, someone you're thinking of, they've let you down. And we do let each other down. But God, he's faithful. He's good to you. And even if present circumstances, things about your past or worries about your future are clouding that a little bit, I pray that you'll let that enter in your life. Uh, This season, this spring break, for some of us, we've got a little more time to relax this upcoming week maybe. And maybe that can be a time for you to contemplate God's goodness in your life. Or maybe God will bring you a friend that will remind you of God's goodness in your life, that will see something that you don't see and call attention to that because we need that, don't we? We need other people to point out God's goodness in our lives, things that we're, we're blind to. I want to close out this morning a series that we've been in for six weeks, a series in Nehemiah, and I'm going to pull a fast one on you. They don't teach you this stuff in seminary, but we're going to close out Nehemiah by turning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a a black ESV study Bible, it would be page 977. If you want to turn there in a moment, not just yet, but in a moment, we're going to put that scripture up on the screen as we'll look at Ephesians chapter 2. But we're going to close out Nehemiah by looking at Ephesians. I know that sounds weird, but trust me on this, and we'll get there in just a moment. Nehemiah, the series that we've been looking at, looking at rebuilding a life. If you do a Google search, as I did a couple of days ago, uh, the most common searches on rebuilding or rebuilding a life, rebuilding character, rebuilding a marriage, rebuilding a family, rebuilding credit. We're we're looking to, to rebuild things in our lives. I've heard from some of you of just what you're trusting God for. Some of you, it's heavy and you're just like, I can't even express it, but just pastor, pray for me as I seek to see God rebuild something in my own life. Two men, separated by almost 500 years, arrived in Jerusalem. They probably traveled the same road. They probably were perched on a hill overlooking the city from the east, from the same direction. One man showed up and he was relieved 
to arrive at his destination, but he had a rising sense of grief as he looked at the charred remains, the pieces of rubble and rocks, what had been burned and what had fallen. And God gave him, had given him, and continued to give him this burning vision of what could be done. A wall could be rebuilt. People could be saved. Futures could be restored. A sense of security and dignity could come to those people, his people. Nehemiah saw the physical condition of Jerusalem all those years ago and said, God, I've got to act. You have called me to act. And we've seen in this man a broken heart, bold asking. We've seen coordination. The guy had a plan. Don't you love it when a leader has a plan? Not just an emotion, but a plan. Not only did we see coordination, we saw cooperation. This great leader got others, people from all walks of life, to put their hands to the task of rebuilding this wall. And what happened... How God used him and ultimately used them is a victory in history. It's something that stands out in the record books and in your scripture. Some almost 500 years later, Jesus shows up to this city of Jerusalem. There's a prayer recorded for us in the Bible, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Where Nehemiah saw the physical condition of the city, Jesus saw its spiritual condition, and his heart was burdened by it. And he said, something is torn down, and something needs to be rebuilt. And as we're going to look at today, Jesus tells us that something ought to be torn down in order for something to be rebuilt. I want you to look at page 977 if you have a Bible in front of you. If not, we're going to look on the screen. Ephesians chapter Two, and this is verses 12 to 22. Ephesians 2, 12 to 22. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, here we go, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him... We both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here we see another wall. And just by the way, a touch of irony. In fact, I think some of you have a a pool going. You're just betting on uh, me mentioning the politics of our day, right? Here here we've been doing a series where the centerpiece is a wall. And here we're looking at politics with a very hostile election. And there's this wall that's being talked about. And here, Paul later, after Jesus, talks about a wall. A wall of hostility. He's saying that, and let's get just a little bit of history here. We read in this verse, 
and you see the religious culture, the climate at the time, that there were people groups, and there were those who thought good and bad, clean and unclean. And Paul is saying, there are those who are near, that's you, the Jewish people, and there are those who are far. And what has Jesus done? He's reconciled both. He's making one because that's what Jesus desires. He's what he, it's what he desires in us. It's what he desires for the church, for the global church in our age. I want to step back for a minute and just mention something about the global church, the, the gospel and its expansiveness and what God is doing in the world today. There are a couple of scholars I want to cite for these um, statistics that I'm about to give you. One is a man named Philip Jenkins who writes in the New Global South. Um, another man, Mark Knoll, that's N-O-L-L. He talks about the new world of global Christianity. Both writers in a very scholarly approach talk about just the changing dynamic that's happening in the world today as it relates to Christianity and the gospel going forward. It talks about the regions where the gospel is growing, South America, Africa, parts of China, and India. Consider the following, if you would, just food for thought, but consider this, that in 1980, 80% of the world Christian population was considered Caucasian. 70% of that in the countries of Europe. And today, Africa, the continent of Africa, has more Christians, active, participating, church-going Christians, than in all the European countries combined. There are more Christians going to church today in Kenya than in Canada. There are more Presbyterians right now in worship in Ghana than in Scotland. Brazil is sending out more missionaries than Canada and Britain, the UK, combined. In 1970, church, there were no legal churches in the nation of China. Today, the number of churches, ready for this, equals the number of churches in the United States. God's doing a work. It's a global thing. So, if you're in an academic situation, most of our college kids are gone now, but if you're in an academic situation or in a situation where you're conversing about Christianity and you hear that, well, it's a Western religion and Americans are trying to impose it, be real. It's not a Western religion. It never has been. If anything, it's been a, a Mideastern religion that's made its way around the world and is growing fast and is going forth and, until God says it is finished until thy kingdom come one day in a new heaven and a new earth. This gospel is big. And Paul is saying he's writing in a day where the world is changing, that it's no more just the people of Israel and the Jewish people and converting to their religious practices. The, the good news was given to the Jewish people, and you had to be converted into the nation of Israel. And God, in the fullness of time, Jesus is saying there's a new way. And that new way is a message for everybody. In verses, let's look at, uh, I think it's verse 13 and 14 if we could. But now in Christ Jesus, we're looking back at what we've just read. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. Circle this phrase, the dividing wall of hostility. Have you noticed that we live in a hostile world? I was reading recently a book by Samuel Huntington called The Class of Civilizations. The book was written in 1992, and in this book, he talks of a coming world crisis 
where people, different civilizations, are forced to live together and the pressure of hostility mounts. And this verse Paul wrote so long ago is talking to us today. There's something in here that we all see, right? There's something that we all know. Just think Chicago. And there's a growing hostility in our world today. Yesterday, me and my sons, my boys, were checking out of a hotel, a downtown hotel in Nashville. We went up for a few days to catch Mississippi State lose in the first round of the tournament and to join the throngs of Kentucky fans to watch their team play. And we were there in the downtown hotel, and the boys were still in the room on their way down. And as, we, as I waited in the lobby, I noticed I was waiting for my rental car to be pulled up in the valet. And I noticed that when another car pulled up, a car that this guy owned that was much, much nicer than any car I've driven, And he got out and he had something to say to the valet parker. Or the valet guy got out and he had something to say as he noticed a scratch on the back of his vehicle. The valet parker and two other employees didn't seem to notice the same scratch that he noticed. But he did. And I'm telling y'all, it got hostile. There were angry words. It was almost an altercation. They were, people were looking at every angle and putting their phones up. And I'm sure this had to be kicked to insurance and maybe to lawyers, but it was just a hostile environment as I saw people get angry to one another. And I thought, man, it's a hostile world that we're living in. I had just been in my room watching the news from Chicago to see, to see what all of us have seen over the weekend. And it just seems like there's something different about our world. It truly seems like there is a class of civilizations that hostility is at a peak right now. And for the church, there is an opportunity for us not to grow angry, bitter, and cynical, not to capitulate and to be a part of that, but to stand out and say there's a better way. And Paul is saying here that there's this wall that has divided us that needs to be knocked down. I'm building something new like Nehemiah did back in the day. Jesus said, I'm building something new, but this this wall, this particular wall, it needs to be knocked down. It's dividing people. It's creating hostility. It's creating misunderstanding. And this ought not to be. We live in a world of walls. There's the Great Wall of China, built almost, it was started about 2,000 years ago. It's about 13,000 miles long. It was built to protect a nation to keep out invading armies. Its widest stretch is 30 feet. Its highest point is 26 feet. It was built with bricks and stones and compactments of earth. In the 14th century, the Ming Dynasty did a major rebuilding of the wall because walls faced a state of disrepair. They crumble and grow old, aging infrastructure. We think about that today with bridges and tunnels and such and roads in Jackson. But there was this crumbling of the wall, and they said under the, in the 14th century, let's rebuild and let's make it better than ever. Let's put newer, more modern elements into this so that it will be what it needs to be. There's an idea, I don't know if you've ever heard this, that the Great Wall of China is the only physical structure that astronauts can see with the naked eye from the moon. You ever heard that? Do you think it's true? You ever heard it from me? Because I've preached that before. And you know what? I was wrong. That's not correct. In fact, I preached it a few years ago in a sermon illustration, and a high school girl corrected me after the sermon. (laughs) But that's a myth, but a very, very important wall. When I was just out of college, President Ronald Reagan, whose wife 
Nancy died a week ago today. Reagan stood there, and Mr. Mikhail Gorbachev, the Soviet leader, was on the other side of the wall, and through voice amplification, that country could hear Ronald Reagan stand there and deliver what's considered to be one of the greatest speeches of this century. And he said, say it with me if you want, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And two years late, a little over two years later, November 9th, 10th, and 11th, people, no surprise here, mostly young people, took to that wall and tore it down. And the winds of change began to sweep through Europe and that part of the world. They say that that marked the beginning of the end of communism and a new world. The Jewish people, in the writing of this letter of Ephesians, they had a wall outside the temple. It was an actual wall with a literal sign that said, no Gentiles. And the idea there is we're clean and you're unclean. We're good and you're bad. Could you imagine having that sense of superiority in your heart? Could you even imagine? I mean, isn't that weird? People so long ago thought they were better than others. There were people who thought there was insiders and outsiders, and those who were inside the group were, in, were, were superior to those who were on the outside. Could you imagine that? But truly, we live in a world of walls real and imagined. We can look at walls built in the Bible and in earlier centuries to protect civilizations and societies, to keep other people out. But we can look in our own hearts and see walls that we build, real or imagined. We can think of, as mentioned, the political landscape. If you don't believe me, watch The View or Ellen or Bill Maher or Sean Hannity. And you can see there's just something in the human spirit when people start talking on both sides that says, I know more than you do. My, my ideas, my people group is better than yours. We do this with social strata, with economics. We have more money and we begin to think something different about those who don't, who are outside the strata that we are in. We compare SAT scores and the colleges that, that we get into, we, we build walls there. Think of a high school lunchroom. You have the jocks and the dorks and the nerds and the hot girls and the dorkish, jockish girls and such, right? And they're just, you, there's labels, right? And there are those who are inside and those who are outside. And the gospel says to us, though those walls, those walls of hostility, they ought to be knocked down. Look at verses 15 and 16 of that same Ephesians 2. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, here it is, church, killing the hostility. There aren't outsiders and insiders. Shouldn't be. There's not even good or bad. There's not clean or unclean. There's not winners or losers. There's not those of us who have it together and those who are dysfunctional. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, in an earlier passage, you'll see that it says that we are all dead. We are dead in our trespasses and in our sins. All. Every one of us. No one better than another. And if you notice that I'm quoting loosely from the movie Princess Bride, there's no degrees of deadness, right? There's just dead. And Scripture is saying that that's our condition, bad and dead. And we need, what does a dead person need? 
We'll talk about this a little bit on Easter in two weeks. But a dead person needs life. And this promise is, is that what Jesus, he comes and he gives. He gives life. How does this new, how does this wall, this old wall of hostility get knocked down? How do we become a new man? We need to look. We need a new look. We need to see things differently. Let me speak to you, church. When I see someone who is poor, I need to think, think James 2.5 that says, God looks at those who are poor in the eyes of the world and makes them rich in faith. When I see a prostitute, I need to learn from Isaiah 64, 6 that says all of our righteousness is like filthy rags. You don't want to know the translation in the Hebrew. But all of our righteousness, it's just like filthy rags. When I see someone who maybe is of lower education than me, I think of 1 Corinthians 1 that says the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. And when I think, oh, I, th- I hear or read in the news or learn of someone who's fallen into deep sin, I don't think I'm any better than them because we are all dead in our trespasses, in our sins. There's a new look. You know, often in Scripture, when God, uh, this happens several times, old and new, when God works in someone's life and gives them a new direction, when a wall is broken down and God builds a, a new life, He gives them a new name. Can you think of some in Scripture? There's Abram, who became Abraham. Um, There's Jacob, that name becomes, uh, or that name means deceiver, who became Israel, one who wrestles with God. Peter, or Simon, became Peter, the rock. Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul. We've talked about this recently. He was named after King Saul, Israel's first king. God gave the others a new name. But Saul gave himself the new name Paul. Paul is saying, and and that name Paul is not a Jewish name, it's a Gentile name, it's a Greek name, and he's saying, I want to become one of you. I want to become one of you to be with you, to learn from you, and to break down that wall. There was a Pharisee prayer in Paul's day, the time of this writing. The Jewish men, this is written and recorded in history and different inscriptions, but Jewish men would often pray, God, I thank you that I'm not a slave, that I'm not a woman, that I'm not a Gentile. And what I love, if you read Acts 16, when the church was growing, the global church, it was global at the time, going from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Galilee, and the uttermost parts of the earth, according to Acts 1.8. But when it grew in Romans 16, Paul goes into a new, new city, to share the gospel and to, um, in turn, start a church. And Romans 16 tells us that the three people who came to Christ were Lydia, a slave girl, and a Roman jailer. Do you get that? Paul's first church had four people, a Jew, a slave, a woman, and a Gentile. The walls knocked down. The walls of hostility. Here we see, again, Let's look at 17 to 22. We see a new humanity. Let's read this again. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. What I want you to see, we've read it twice, but what I want you to see there is the progression of intimacy of those who are called into Christ. You were outsiders. You were kingdoms of the, citizens of the kingdom. Your brothers and sisters in the family. And this seems odd, but it says your bricks. Your bricks stacked on top of one another. Your bricks stacked on top of one another and cemented together. Why? I'm building something. I've knocked something down, that wall of hostility, the thing that divides us, and I'm creating a new humanity where we are part of bringing people together. Where love reigns supreme. And you'll see later in Ephesians 4 when we speak the truth in love, when we use our gifts, that this body of Christ is built up into something beautiful. It's built up and it spills over and it blesses others. We see from Ephesians 4 what God wants to do is he builds as one brick lays on the other. That he wants to build something. And here we, have th- we see three things. We see a new purpose or new foundation. Here we go. Number one, a common source of righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. He and he alone can only make dead people come to life. We see a common foundation of truth that's built on the apostles and prophets. That translates to us that this scripture is really important. And do you know, we seek our, in the best way possible to speak to our culture in the most relevant way, but we believe this. We believe in the history of the church. We believe in the work that God is doing. And we stand on the foundation of his word and his word alone. And thirdly, we see a common purpose. God has something for us to be the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Unless you and I are part of the body of Christ, we will not experience the fullness of Christ. So this morning as we close, I want to ask you, I want to ask you about your own life. I want you to think about our church. I want, to think, I want you to think about the church. I want you to think about your own life. What walls have been built that need to be torn down? In what ways are you impatient with others and judgmental to those who are on the outside? In what ways are you putting your hope in politics or in a political candidate and not in the ultimate source, in Jesus Christ? In what ways do you put your taste and opinions and preferences above what's true and biblical? What are godly convictions? Think with me and dream with me about a church without a dividing wall of hostility. A church that would bless the community and bless all lives. A gospel that's so big that it's not beyond the reach of anyone. Think with me about this good news. Reigning in your heart. Expressing itself in a way that draws others. Unless you're part of the body of Christ, you won't experience the fullness of Christ. Do you know God wants to build something called his church? Do you know that he wants to use you in that process? God wants to do something right here.
And if he's calling you to be here, I want to ask you to be a part of the body of Christ so that you can experience the fullness of Christ. I want you to bow your head if you would and close your eyes.